So obviously this weekend is a very important weekend in our country's history. 20 years ago, I remember waking up and uh, I was living in my sister's house at the time trying to rebuild our marriage. Uh, I remember I had a dentist appointment that day and as I woke up, the normal talk radio show that I woke up to every morning didn't have the same jovial tone, the light-hearted uh, tone that it normally had. It was replaced by a somber tone, a, a tone of disbelief as information was being given as best it could. I remember running to the television and watching in disbelief, as I'm sure you did as well with the rest of the world, as smoke billowed from the World Trade Center. I had no clue what to do or what to think except to run into my sister's room and scream and wake her up and say, I think we're at war. As details emerged throughout the day, I did the only thing that I could. I went about my day as best I was able to. I went to my dentist appointment, went to the dentist, and the dentist had a television in the room as we watched together while he was working on my teeth. And everywhere I went that day, it was the same narrative. Everybody was glued to a television, looking in disbelief at the destruction and the rubble. And at the end of the day, life felt a little different. But here we are now, 20 years later, And that site that was once in rubble has since been restored. Now, while we can't and we shouldn't erase the memory of those tragic events, the ability to rebuild what once was destroyed is really quite remarkable. But how did that restoration take place? A people, Americans, with a shared discontent, a shared vision for rebuilding, and leaders who would guide people from discontent toward restoration. The thought of leaving that site in New York City in rubble would not stand for Americans, and that discontentment led to a vision of rebuilding that took place, a vision rooted in what was, but in also what could be. As one world leader put it, we remember, we rebuild, we come back stronger. When I first interviewed last year, for this position here at Oswego Alliance, the message that you conveyed to me was a language of rebuilding. You said that what this church needed was a fresh vision and a, a future direction, but rooted in what has been. And as I start my second year here at Oswego Alliance Church, as I've spent a year with our church leaders developing relationships together, as I've sat in your living room, as we've sat together over coffee and over meals, uh, we've looked at these things, and even you have assessed this church based on conversations that I've had with you and also through practical tools that we've used, like the peak profile assessment that we did last December. We have many positive things, friends, that we can affirm and the building blocks for a fresh direction and a fresh vision. But what you have also spoken from the very beginning is I think that we are in a position of a shared discontent where we want to see something different. And friends, what I'm telling you is that's not necessarily a bad thing. It isn't bad because a shared discontent is a precursor to shaping the future that God wants for us, a future that he wants us to abide in his will and to come back stronger than ever. A shared discontent is the first step toward a desired vision, a first step towards rebuilding and taking into consideration what has been and also who we want to be. We remember, we rebuild, we come back stronger. 
And with that as the basis, this week we're starting a new series that we're calling Rise Up and Build, a vision for building God's church. And more specifically, we're going to be looking at, over the next 10 weeks, where we are headed as Oswego Alliance Church. Over the next 10 weeks, we are going to be looking at how we can remember who we have been and celebrate, how we can navigate a shared discontent with where we are, and cast a God-shaped vision for rebuilding through the lens of the book of Nehemiah. The story of Nehemiah is rooted in the concept of a shared discontent and a vision to rebuild. And the anchor passage that we find in Nehemiah is in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let's rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. A people with a shared discontent, a desired vision for rebuilding, and a leader in Nehemiah who would guide Israel out of discontent and toward a God-shaped vision for the people. That's where we're headed with this series, friends. Now, the story of Nehemiah is important historically in God's story of redemption. And the background of the story of how Israel got into this position is going to be helpful as it helps us to understand their shared discontent and how to move forward in that God-shaped vision of rebuilding. The book of Nehemiah is written somewhere around 430 B.C., but 150 years before this story... Judah, the last territory that existed in Israel, had been destroyed and conquered by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were later conquered by the Persians. But in the midst of that, the Israelites were taken into captivity. They were prisoners of war. All of this took place because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And this is a part of the restoration. But over time... As prophesied in Isaiah 44, 28, a remnant, a small group of Israelites, is allowed to go back into Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And under this Persian rule, the Israelites were allowed to rebuild that temple, but it was only the temple. They couldn't rebuild the city, the city walls and gates, the defense system of the city. It was a temple that existed in rubble. It was very much, it would have looked like New York City on September 11th, 2001. So consider what it was like to be an Israelite in that moment. Your city is destroyed. Your ancestors have been taken as prisoners of war. You are allowed to go back and rebuild your temple, but it sits in a heap of rubble around it, and you are left in a situation where you can't defend yourself against any of your enemies. In the beginning of this passage, according to the envoy that visits Nehemiah in the citadel, we see how this story begins and the posture of the Israelites at that particular time. In Nehemiah 1.3, we read this. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived, the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The people 
can't escape the reality that is right before their eyes. Their destroyed city. A temple that is sitting in a heap of rubble, a house of God in a war zone. And they look around their city. It is a constant reminder of a heritage that should have been glorious, but instead is filled with guilt and defeat and death. This city on a hill that Solomon prayed for in 1 Kings 8.42, that it would be a city that foreign nations would look to and pray to in order to see God, had now become a cautionary tale among the nations that nobody was worried about. Nobody looked to Jerusalem to see God. All they saw was a defeated people in trouble and shame. This is the situation that sets the backdrop for the introduction to the book of Nehemiah, and it sets the stage for everything that's going to take place in this book. It begins with a shared discontent, a discontent that Nehemiah becomes burdened with. You see, it all begins with a burden. A burden that grows for Nehemiah. A burden for something more for God's people. As we are introduced to Nehemiah, he lives in Persia. He works for the Persian government. He's a cupbearer for the king. And in reality, Nehemiah is living his best life in Persia. There is no reason for him to be concerned with anything that's happening over in Jerusalem because he is a part of the dominating culture. He has a prominent job. He lives in a place of personal peace and affluence. If he were living today, what we would say about Nehemiah is that he was living the American dream. Why in the world would he jeopardize that for Jerusalem. But from the onset of this story, you can hear his heart for his heritage and for his people. He asked this envoy from Judah about two things. He says, how are the people and how is the city? And upon hearing the news of the people, his people, his heritage, in great shame and trouble, and a city that is destroyed, we hear his heart in verse 4. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued in fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah, here's the state of Jerusalem. A wall destroyed and the state of a people in shame and in great trouble. And he weeps and he mourns. Nehemiah is broken over a broken people and he must do something. He must. He's compelled to by God. And the rest of the book of of Nehemiah is the story of this leader who develops this shared discontent with God's people and casts a vision to rebuild and lead them into that God-shaped vision. A God-shaped vision to rise up and build. This is the story of Nehemiah. But it's also our story at Oswego Alliance Church, as God has placed the same type of burden on me, the same type of burden on Pastor Verlin and on our elders and on our staff. This is the reason why we have set aside this time to learn from the wisdom of Nehemiah. While we would not go to the lengths to say that this church is in great shame and trouble, what we would say is that we can learn from Nehemiah in how we can cast a God-shaped vision for this church that we will be remembering that we will rebuild and we will cast a vision for where God wants to make us stronger. And it all begins where Nehemiah begins. A God-shaped vision begins with a burden for God-shaped people. There are two presenting problems as we begin the story of Nehemiah and Nehemiah 1.3. 
people who are in great shame and trouble, and a wall that's destroyed. Now, if you ask most people who know their Bibles, and you ask them, what is the story of Nehemiah about? Most often, you're going to receive the answer. It's about the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, which is not entirely right or wrong. It does, in fact, take place. But the building of the wall is only a small part of the story. In fact, it is a means to the larger story, the whole story of what God wants to do in Israel. When Nehemiah hears about the state of Jerusalem and of the people, notice what's missing in his prayer. Any mention of the wall. The wall isn't Nehemiah's concern. The people are his concern. If you listen to the emphasis of his prayer in Nehemiah 1.6, he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Is the wall a problem? You bet it is. Is the wall going to play an integral role in how the story of Nehemiah plays out? Absolutely. But the wall is only a part of the story. It's a means to the bigger story. Nehemiah's burden isn't for wall building. It's for people building. But it's not just a burden for the people. It's a burden for a God-shaped people. That the only way to cast a vision for a God-shaped people that he sees is to have a God-shaped prayer. And so he begins with prayer. As Nehemiah comes to God, notice the three focuses of his prayer. First, he prays with a God-shaped view of God. Notice how Nehemiah begins his appeal to God in verse 5. He says, And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He begins with the holiness of God. He begins by acknowledging who God is and who God is in relationship to his people. In many ways, this is the Old Testament version of what Jesus prays in his introduction to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, when he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the model for prayer always begins with the exaltation of God. Here's why it matters. A God-shaped vision only matters if the majesty and the holiness and the glory of God are at the center. If God is not the center of any of our visions, friends, nothing that we do matters. But notice what else Nehemiah affirms in what he has previously prayed in Nehemiah 1.6. When Nehemiah asked God for his ear to be attentive and for his eyes to be open, what is he assuming? He's assuming what Dave prayed for us earlier, that God wants to listen and God wants to see what is on Nehemiah's heart. He affirms who God is. God has never ceased to be holy and glorious and majestic, and he has never turned his ear or his eye from his people who seek to do his will over theirs. Nehemiah is presuming from the very onset that this burden that he has of discontentment matters to God. 
But not only does he affirm who God is, he affirms what God does. In Nehemiah 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcast in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather you to bring you to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Do you notice what Nehemiah is doing there? He is praying God's words back to him. Nehemiah appeals to God's own words of restoration. You see, Nehemiah knows that a God-shaped vision for a God-shaped people begins with appealing to the promises that God has already made. But in that language of promise, it also demands something of us. You see, Nehemiah also prays for God-shaped mercy. Notice, before Nehemiah asked God to listen to him for anything or to see anything, notice how he prays. He first comes to God and he says that he is confessing the sins of the people, Israel, which they have sinned against him. And he says, I, even I and my family have sinned against you. Even my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept your commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. It begins with a posture of confession. Nehemiah understands the fundamental principle that the largest stumbling block to a God-shaped people is unconfessed sin. Friends, if we come to God with unconfessed sin in our hearts, we should have no expectation that God will listen to our prayers. It actually negates the prayer of acknowledging his sovereignty and his glory because sin says that we don't believe that God is sovereign and glorious. You see this, for example, in Isaiah's prophecy. As Isaiah begins his prophecies against this very people who have been separated from Jerusalem, he said, Isaiah prays this, or says this on behalf of God in Isaiah 1.15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from your prayers. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Do you ever consider for a moment that unconfessed sin is making God not listen to our prayers? That's what was happening to this people. They were a world-shaped people, worshiping idols, and Nehemiah's burden for them first, before we can think about casting a God-shaped vision for a God-shaped people, is we need people who come to the foot of God and say, we have sinned and we need mercy. In order for God to fulfill his promise in Nehemiah 1.8, he is presuming that we will do our part in returning to him in what we see in Nehemiah 1.9. And with that as the basis... A God-shaped view of God with a God-shaped heart for mercy and repentance, Nehemiah knows what must come next. And so he prays for a God-shaped boldness. Nehemiah knows that he is not going to be able to pull any of this off without one important person, the king of Persia, his boss. And he knows that this is going to come with a high level of risk. Israel is, they are enemies of Persia. Why would the king of Persia allow for people that are his enemies to be restored? Without God's hand of blessing, Nehemiah knows that this is never going to happen. And so he prays, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. 
What was Nehemiah's vision at this point? We have no clue. Pastor Verlin is going to help unpack that for us next week. But what the point is here is that the reality is that a God-shaped vision does not come easy, and so it must be bathed in the prayer for boldness. But there's one more statement of boldness that happens at the end of this passage. It's the very last sentence that we see here. Now I was the cupbearer of the king. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He tasted wine for a living so that the king didn't die. That was his job. He wasn't a city manager or city engineer or the comptroller or an architect. He tasted wine so that the king wouldn't die, which gained him access. His profession didn't equip him for the work that was about to happen, but his position put him in the right place at the right time to be the right person to do the right thing, to have a shared discontent for God's people and to be the burden bearer of shaping a God-shaped vision for a people who would come to be in restoration with God. And he knew that a God-shaped vision began with a God-shaped people. And that's where we are as a church. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. And as they do, friends, if the world can rebuild a site like the site of the World Trade Center with, with an intention to what we can do in the world, what can God's people do with a God-shaped vision for our future? With the power of the Holy Spirit guiding us. Friends, we've got to be real with each other. We do have some broken walls here that need to be rebuilt. But we're not about rebuilding walls. We will build only as many walls as we need to to build a God-shaped people. Nehemiah points us in that direction, and it begins with a burden of prayer. A burden for people. Friends, our leaders, as we meet together, we are doing our best to listen to God and to prepare what we believe is a God-shaped vision for a God-shaped church here at Oswego Alliance. But it doesn't have to do with wall building. It has to do with people building. The reality is, the church is you and you are the church. So insofar as we build God's church, we are building you as a people. And insofar as we are building you as a people, we are building God's church. Because here's the reality. Some of us find ourselves in the place of sitting in the rubble in our lives. And what you need to know and what you need to recognize right now is what Nehemiah recognized, that I have a burden for you. That there are people sitting in this room that have a burden for you. That they want to see you be the God-shaped person that God intends for you to be that places him at the center of your life and that happens at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you are sitting in the rubble, you do not have to sit in the rubble any longer. God is saying in your life, through the blood of Jesus, through the cross that restores you to God, that you can rise up and build. And it's a life that builds the church because the church is only people. It is the gathered people of God. And friends, as we go forward, our heart's desire is to build a God-shaped people. That's all that matters. That's all that matters to me as a pastor is to build a God-shaped people. Friends, we're going to remember there are saints within this church 
who have been here since the beginning or at least close to it. And for those of you who are going to want to move quickly, myself included, we have to be sensitive to that reality and recognize that we have people that are a part of this heritage that matter. As we go forward, we also have to recognize that there are some things that will need to be adjusted, changes that will have to be made, and that's okay too. That the people who are, who are hungry for change, that that's going to have to matter. For some, it's going to go too fast, and for some, it's going to go too slow, and for some who have the Goldilocks perspective, it may end up being just right. <laughs> but we're going to move at the pace that God calls us to move. And we're going to need all of us together. Just like with these little children that were sitting here, every single one of you is necessary. Stay with it. Stay with us. Stay with us when it's not going fast enough for you and you feel like we're not getting to where you think we need to be. Stay with us when you feel like it's moving too fast because there are people here who need your wisdom, older saints. We are called to rise up and build. We are going to remember, we are going to rebuild, and we're going to come out stronger than ever. Not because of us, but because of the God who empowers us to do what he calls us to do. To be a God-shaped people and to cast a vision to be a God-shaped people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today recognizing, Father, that in a lot of ways as humans, because of our imperfections, we build walls that probably shouldn't be built, and we've allowed certain walls that should be built to be torn down. And in the midst of all of that, Father, what we recognize is what we need to be more than anything else is a people after your name. Which means, Father, that you have placed leaders within your church like Nehemiah to cast a vision. We recognize that the people in Israel probably wouldn't have done anything without leaders to guide them toward that God-shaped vision. So we pray for our leaders. We pray for our pastors and elders, our staff. God, we pray for wisdom for us and how we lead and how we cast vision, and how we guide our people. And we pray for a heart for every member here who calls us, we go alliance, their home, that they would have the posture to trust leadership in the way that the people of Israel, sitting in rubble, trusted Nehemiah to say, yes, we will trust you, we will trust that you are listening to God, and we will rise up and build. Father, forgive us for when we stumble, and we make missteps, you are a God who is bigger than our missteps and will guide us through to, the, to your perfect will. Father, as a church, as on behalf of this church, I pray for my own sins. I confess my sins before you. God, and if there is anything in me that is hindering the work of this church, I confess it to you now in the name of Jesus in order to receive mercy. That my unconfessed sin would not be a hindrance. I pray for these people. I pray that as they come before your throne that, that there's nothing unconfessed, undealt with that would hinder the work that you want in their lives or in the life of this church. And as we come to you exalting your name 
in a posture of confession, removing the stumbling blocks, God, we pray in your name that you would give us success according to your will. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.